Welcome to the MPTO Show. I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and joining me today are members of PBO Group. We have Adam Rigby, PBO Group Director of Operations and Certified Processist, Andrew Lipner, Clinic Director at PBO Kawartha and Certified Processist, Green Jones, Clinical Director at PBO Niagara and Certified Processist, and last but not least, Will Hattie, Clinical Processist at PBO Barry and PBO Owen Sun. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks Glad for having us. Thanks for having us. Your team has been involved with who I think is the first patient here in Ontario who has had osteointegration with Dr. Manjad Almaderas in Australia. Since then, you had been instrumental in providing information on the path, if you will, for patients who qualify for this innovative procedure. So, Alan, let's start with you. Who is PBO Group and um, how did the team get involved with osteointegration? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks again for having us here. Uh, P- the PBO Group is um, is a group of companies, a group of clinics uh, throughout Southern Ontario um, that have uh, committed ourselves to doing the best uh, jobs that we can for all of our uh, prosthetic clients uh, and those in Southern Ontario that need uh, the type of care that we can provide. Um, we have found that working together as a group and sharing uh, resources, not just um, you know economic resources and that sort of thing, but but uh, different ideas on how to best care for people, how to best treat uh, different individuals with different issues gives us the best sort of a um, collaborative approach to to that kind of care. And of course, as you mentioned, one of the things that we came across as a group is uh, osteointegration. We came across it um, through one of our clients, as you mentioned, who um, uh, more or less landed uh, in our doorstep and we didn't know a whole lot about it. This osteo, I mean, even now it's still very, very new and uh, quite interesting. So um, in a commitment to be as good as we can be for the people that need our services. Uh, we started looking for what training was available. And the truth of the matter is there was none. Um, there really wasn't any. So we went looking for uh, anybody else that we could collaborate with um, so that we could do the best that we could do uh, from an OI care point of view. Um, and that took us to Australia initially. Um, we went to Australia and spent some time with um, Dr. Medeiros's team. Um, and uh, did what we could while we were there for a substantial amount of time to to learn the processes as best we could. Uh, came back and similarly spent time here uh, together as a group uh, and also in Montreal with Dr. Turcotte's team. So um, while the formalized version of training is not available, we've certainly uh, done everything that we can to try to get uh, what we can. And at the same time, trying to share that with our colleagues that that aren't necessarily part of our group. Um, through different uh, webinars and um, individual conversations with other clinicians around Southern Ontario. With Peggy being the first patient in Ontario, and I believe in Canada, she's been very vocal about her OI procedure. Did you know she was going for it? And what did you think when she came back and showed you? Well, we... We knew that's a great that's a great question. We knew she was investigating it. We knew that it was part of her path that she was really exploring um, to a large degree. So we weren't shocked, um, but the idea that this is now ours to support her with, this is now ours to support her along this journey, um, and we know very little and the resources that weren't available. That's what became um, the you know, the modus operandi for us at that point was we got to learn now because this is no longer something that is going to happen in the future. We'd heard about it and we would go to conferences and you would hear about this osteointegration thing. But until she walked in our door, 
it was always some some futuristic thing that you know would happen eventually, um, and then that eventually became immediate. So I think from a, we were not shocked necessarily, but we certainly had our curve accelerated. In in I w- I think that's probably the best way to describe sort of where where we were at. Um, Bryn here. I I was there. I was in the room. I was probably a little more shocked than Alan was at the time. Alan was working with Peggy on the. Uh, on her transfermal socket. So he had a little more background, but when she showed up to clinic and I was in the room, I had a oh moment. <laughs> and then that's when Alan and I started talking about, okay, what do we do going forward? And then that was the decision to go to Australia. And that's when uh, Alan and I ventured that way. What were the challenges in fitting her with traditional prosthesis? And what were the early challenges you experienced in ensuring prosthetic wear and her OI work together? I would say in the short term, um, the, uh, the, the shortest answer is that the advantages almost immediately far outweighed any of the challenges. So, so that would be my initial comment on it. Um, but notwithstanding, um, some of the immediate and short-term challenges were, uh, quite frankly, were the lack of knowledge, not just from us as a prosthetic team, but from our whole care team uh, from a rehabilitation point of view. So... Peggy was at the stage where she needed to start doing more advanced training and more advanced therapy, um, more advanced gait skills. And we weren't 100% sure how to do that. How do we train for this? Um, that was certainly uh, one of the first and immediate challenges. Um, the aesthetics of it certainly were shocking for people. So I know that that was um, something that um, she certainly had the right mindset and was prepared to deal with it, but it doesn't mean it wasn't there. Um, and then I would say the, the third uh, significant challenge at that point was getting the um, componentry that she was using, that she had been using in traditional sockets um, to work for uh, non-traditional sockets uh, or OI specifically. And some of the um, IT issues around the, the knee unit that she was using they're designed to function with a socket, not necessarily a direct skeletal connection. And so some of the IT challenges around making those things work together uh, was an issue that, that we had to deal with initially. Yeah, and if I can interject, moving forward with that componentry, um, I think what Alan is alluding to is we originally set her up with her genuine knee, which she had. Um, actually, I'll back up. She came with... Uh, uh, OP4 pneumatic knee from Australia because it was lighter for training, part of the weight protocol. We were then given permission, and that was through conversation with Australia, to say, what are we allowed to do here? They eventually said, you're allowed to move on to your Eugenia. It's a bit heavier, but you're at the right timing. So she did that. That setup wasn't much different than our normal prosthetic setup. The challenge came when Peggy decided, I want a bike, and she was quite she was an avid biker at the time. And she said, like, I want to get back on my bike. She had a Bartlett knee, which has tendons on it that come up that attach to a traditional socket. We no longer have a traditional socket to attach to. So how do we use this knee? So that was when we reached out to Australia again um, and said, what can we do with this? And with the, uh, the interesting part of it was they didn't know either. Um, so we, I set her up with a bike we set up with a bike stand she got going that was good but um it was actually between ourselves and her father-in-law coming up with a another component to put on top of her uh 
OI components to allow the tenants to connect. And that was just done um, kind of on her own. Uh, and and it, it did work, but we asked permission, made sure that it was all right. And because and, again, we didn't know um, and everything kind of worked out, but we're, we're just navigating that landscape, which was a little bit new and difficult at times, but we got there. Are those unique challenges common for OI patients that you have supported so far? Um, well, I had the advantage of, you know, my first patient that uh, had an osseointegrated prosthesis. Um, Alan and Brent had already been through it all, right? So uh, they had uh, worked out a lot of the kinks and, and I could rely on them uh, for support. Um, and I think by that time, my first patient had gone to Australia as well. They they had have all, all also kind of changed the way they did things as well. And uh, so I didn't have a lot of those same challenges. She When she came back, she already had the exact same setup that she had on her conventional socket attached. And, uh, and really, I, I didn't have to do a whole lot in that situation. Uh, it was just support going forward and, and uh, managing alignment changes and what have you, which, which wasn't really a whole lot different than her traditional socket. Uh, in this case, I think every patient's going to be a little bit different. And uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't run into too many unique challenges with the standard prosthetic components. We did run into some uh, issues that we had to overcome with the osseointegrated ones, though. Similar to Andrew, I, I guess we uh, we lean on the expertise of Al and Brynn, and we're kind of on more of the preliminary stages here in Barrie and Owen Sound, so um, we rely on our clinical group for their expertise on the experiences they've had, but nothing we've seen so far is, has given us too much trouble. So numbers overall, um, we've dealt with seven people that have gone through the whole process from start to finish and have the OI currently um, we've got five more that are in the system and then uh, and then one that i'll talk about just the end um, of the seven i'd say it's half and half um, based on kawartha and niagara um, half and half between australia and montreal the four or the five that are ongoing right now are currently all ongoing with montreal so it is swinging more towards staying home than going over to australia but that also has to do with the fact that Australia has supported Montreal and to this point now Montreal is doing far more of them. So um, there was like the five ongoing that are in the system currently. Some of that's held up right now because the clinic was shut down there. Like all our own amputee clinics got shut down during COVID. Uh, we're all up and running now, but they were shut down for a couple months. And the last communication with Montreal I had is that they're, they were gearing up for a November 1st reopening of that clinic. So um, we've sent a couple of referrals in. In the meantime, they're still accepting referrals. They're just putting them in queue now to try and get them through, so that when they open up, they'll be uh, they'll be ready to go. In what ways does the journey change for the amputee who has gone through OI versus a traditional socket? Um, I I think the short answer, and I know Andrew probably has some insight to this as well, um, but I think the short answer would be that. Um, because one of the requirements of, of being a good candidate for OI is historical use of a traditional socket, there is a direct comparison. So for us to be able to say the journeys are different between the two, it's 
they're not different. It's a continuation of the same journey because it's always going to be somebody who has gone from traditional to OI. Um, and so it's just a new experience or it's just the next stage in the journey. And by definition, they've sought out OI because the traditional is not working. So almost always it's, it's better uh, because it wasn't good before for various reasons. And I, I don't know if you maybe want to elaborate on that, Andrew. I know you uh, have dealt with that for sure. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's important to remember that with this OSU integration treatment, there's going to be people that have varying amounts of success with that as well. And, um, you know, we hope that everyone does better, but there are unfortunately going to be situations um, where maybe things don't work out as we had planned, predicted, or hoped. And um, so in most situations, as you said, Alan, you know, a patient is going from a situation where their traditional socket prosthesis just is not working out. Um, and even if there are some minor complications with the osteointegrated prosthesis, the sort of advantages outweigh the, the disadvantages or the challenges that they might face with an osteointegrated prosthesis. Bryn, um, yes. you had alluded to a, a particular patient that is the opposite of this story or, or probably ties in now. I know you were going to talk about it a little later, but, but yeah. it absolutely is the corollary of what we were just saying. So we did have a client come in and ask regarding osteointegration and knee disarticulation um, rather new, I'll say, like under two years as being an amputee. Uh, no history of poor socket fit. Things have gone pretty well, but wanted to, she's young and wanted to explore her options. So we call or got a hold of Montreal. They accepted the referral. She went there and did the, the day of testing. And at the end of it, um, the team and herself concluded that um, she was doing fine with the socket and should probably not do OSEO at this point. Uh, because traditional socket was working well. Um, she didn't have, there wasn't a leaps and bounds that they saw where she was going to improve. So she's the one that we have so far that was actually said, you know what, I'm not going to do it right now. I know what the options are and it might be a future consideration, but traditional is good. And I'm, and the, and the team in Montreal was on board with that or, or directed it that way. So. How does your team assess if OI is something you'd like for them to consider or think about? Are there amputees that OI is good for or a good option for? Um, so when they come to clinic, uh, they'll meet with the physiatrist, the physiotherapist, and the prosthetist, and like so normal amputee clinic. Um, what we're looking for is have they tried a traditional socket with what level of success? Uh, the reasons for why and why. Um, Sometimes someone, like if someone comes in and says, I want to run better, well, contraindication actually, because high impact is not OI strength. So making sure that their goals meet up with OI, um, are they a non-smoker? Uh, are they diabetic? Like certain key questions that we know Montreal is going to use right off the bat to determine. And if they cross off all the right boxes in there, then the physiotherapist or a uh, the will make a referral to Montreal and then we let them take the lead. And then, uh, and then we just become the caveat for them to, um, to help them along their journey once they get into the system or once they've determined whether or not they're an OI client. Have they all been 
your patients in your clinic? Uh, no, they haven't all been. So we've had uh, we've had clients come from, like for instance, our clinics in Niagara, but we've seen clients from Mississauga, Barrie, um, Brampton. So and they've through their own prosthetist, and the prosthetist has said uh, you should talk to the guys in Niagara or the PBO group in general, and or people are just researching themselves and they come across our also integration stuff on our website and then they call and then we say, yeah, if you get a referral from your doctor, we have no problem starting the process for you and then going from there. Um, and we all, we had one OI client who came down, we did the whole process with them. Um, they are now back with their prosthetist um, from where they were. They just needed the, they needed the jump start to get going to know the right referral source. We got them through that and that's, and that's fine. Um, Cause at the end of the day, it's, it's about client care. And, and for some people, OI is definitely a better, way to go for client care. What advice do you have for listeners who may be feeling a little bit apprehensive about having the OI discussion with a prosthetist? Quite a few of the clients that come our way have just made a simple phone call. So we ask to just call the office. Um, one of our receptionists will get the message to myself or Andrew or Alan, like whoever is closest to you. And then we have a phone call first and figure out the last person who came down. It was a matter of They'd be a long time amputee. Okay, cross up all the boxes. Yeah, you'd be appropriate. Let's do some screening first, and then ask your questions. We're we're more than willing to answer as much as we can. Um, pre, prior to someone driving, especially if they're from outside of for us Niagara, driving to wherever clinic they need to go to. Um, yeah, a, a phone call with your questions is always the best way to, to start. What do you think prosthetists should do if they don't have the experience with OI? and you're interested in the procedure as a patient? So it's not uncommon that a prosthetist would have very little experience with OI, especially in Canada. If they don't have experience with it, they should refer you to someone who does, that being a prosthetist within the PBO group. Um, As a patient, it's always good to advocate for yourself. So you can certainly do research on your own and see if you're a good candidate. Um, As Al spoke to earlier, Amputees often think about this after their traditional socket doesn't work out. So if that's not working out and the prosthetist has made multiple attempts at trying to make that socket work out, it's definitely uh, not a bad idea to certainly just approach them and say, um, listen, all these sockets we've been trying are unsuccessful and I'm still getting pain and discomfort. What do you think about OI? And if they don't have the information themselves, then they should certainly refer you to someone within our group or, or another healthcare professional who knows more. I would add a little bit this to that. Um, I, and I think those are excellent points, Will, and I, I think that those are a great um, starting point for people. Um, but I would also add that if, you know, if there's any prosthetists listening, um, we're happy for prosthetists to call us too. Um, and, you know, some, some of our colleagues um, that are going to see this, I mean, as it grows and develops and goes more and more, uh, we're happy to have phone calls from fellow prosthetists. I know for myself, I've been uh, fielding and trading back and forth uh, by email, actually, um, with a prosthetist in Halifax um, who's, who's working on trying to learn more and understand things. So there's lots of opportunities for research, and we're happy to um, share whatever we have. So for the prosthetist that doesn't have the experience, certainly for their patient that, you know, put them in touch with, as Will says, put them in touch with somebody who 
who does have experience, but if they are also interested in gaining some of that experience, um, they should reach out to us too. We're happy to happy to talk to them. OI devices look different than what people are used to seeing. Are there unique challenges that go along with that? So the the appearance of a OI prosthesis in comparison to a conventional one, they're basically the same with the exception of where the the bone attaches to the the prosthetic componentry. At the any traditional prosthesis typically has metal componentry, a pylon, two clamp adapter. That can normally be covered with a cosmetic foam cover that uh, can make it look more anatomical and approximate, uh, you know, quote-unquote normal anatomy. Um, that's the same as in OI. So uh, a foam cover can still be applied to make it look more anatomical. The only difference is where the, the, the implant joins to the rest of the prosthesis. So you'll see an abutment at the end of the implant, uh, which then engages with uh, another adapter that attaches the rest of the prosthetic componentry. Uh, a cover can still be made to cover up that abutment. So it's really up to the patient what they would like. But that's the only real cosmetic difference between a traditional socket prosthesis versus an OI uh, prosthesis. So cost-wise, other than the surgery cost, there's no additional prosthetic cost-wise. Yeah, so there's the, there's the surgical cost. There's the cost of knee, shank, foot, which would be the normal cost. Um, there, is there is a component cost that you have to go through for the type of attachment that goes on the dual cone, the taper sleeve, and then the, um, the, the osseo adapter. So there is a cost associated with that, those components. Similarly, like there's a cost for a foot or a knee. Um, that are up and above the actual surgical cost. Uh, but once those parts are done uh, or paid for, then the only cost going forward would be prosthetic costs in terms of knees and feet as they wear out, or as well as there's a maintenance cost that comes along with this too. Um, it's recommended or was recommended at least that every three months it was uh, serviced. Um, that's not always possible depending on where you live. I know that that was a recommendation by Australia, but you're also doing surgeries all around the world. Um, and depending if you're linked up with the process or not, whether you could do that um, is, is of question. Uh, but we have had experience with servicing them. And there's a, let's call it an hour appointment. So there's a cost with that every three to six months about coming in to have it serviced. An important one um, in that we just did one the other day and the parts, the, the taper sleeve can get quite stuck onto the dual cone. And what you don't want to risk is that they actually get stuck to a point where we can't service it. So it's mostly about coming in, loosening everything off, taking it apart, cleaning it, putting it back together um, to make sure that everything functions for as long as possible. I'd also like to add that uh, these components that Bryn is referring to, the uh, external osseointegrated parts, uh, just like any other part of the prosthesis, a knee or a foot, they're subjective to wear as well. So eventually, a day will come where they'll have to be replaced. This is something that my one of my patients just went through uh, here in Peterborough, where uh, one of the parts had, had uh, shown some wear, and there was some movement that was that was affecting uh, her ability to walk, and was actually loosening off the prosthesis. Uh, so that part had to be replaced. So that's something that uh, those looking at osseointegration integration as potentially an option for themselves should think about as well, future costs once. 
and, and often, sorry, I'm, I'm going to jump on top of you there just for a quick second, Bryn, and say that that's also something that, as Andrew says, it needs to be considered when you're looking at sort of lifetime costs, right? As you're predicting going forward, you need to know that those are coming. Particularly, the younger you are, the more miles you put on your stuff, um, and the longer you're using it, the more frequently these things are going are gonna to happen. It's not dissimilar to a car, right? If you only drive it 100 kilometers a year, it's going to last a real long time. But if you're um, a super user, and, and doing lots and lots of stuff that that has the potential for it to be more frequent um, and is absolutely something that because of how new this is, funding agencies, whether it's private insurance or WSIB or, or any of those funding bodies, don't necessarily understand that this isn't a one-time event and they need to be aware um, and it's critical that they're aware of uh, the future costs. Um, and that will be a massive issue as OHIP starts to tackle this conversation as well. Yeah, I was also going to mention that one of the future costs that has come up is um, there's a safety mechanism in all these clamps, it, effectively shear pins, to make sure that if there's enough torsion on the device that the implant isn't impacted. Um, so a bushing would need to be replaced or um, a safety pin. So we have had to replace some of those, which are an ongoing cost depending on the user's activities and whether or not they go through them. We have some clients who haven't broken any and we have others that have broken multiple. So albeit smaller costs, there's still something of wear and tear that can happen with these, uh, these components. While I was doing my research on OI, I keep seeing articles about stoma. What does an OI user do when his or her device breaks or fails or becomes infected? Are those parts readily available in Canada? So as the implant exits uh, the body through the skin, uh, there's actually a little bit of an opening there. Uh, we call it a stoma. And uh, the stoma is unlike the other openings in our body, for example, your eye. Um, so if you were to get debris or, or, or bacteria into your eye, that could be an irritant and that could result in an infection. So it's important to the, for these patients to regularly maintain their limb, uh, you know, clean the stoma daily and make sure they're not introducing any of those um, foreign bodies that could potentially cause a problem. Uh, from the patient perspective, that's probably their biggest responsibility on a daily basis is just make sure things are clean and, uh, you know, inspect their limb to make sure nothing's out of the ordinary. And if they run into any issue, uh, then they want to contact uh, either their prosthetist uh, or their family doctor um, to investigate. Do you ever need to replace that part where the residual limb is attached to the metal piece or no? Yeah, so there's actually several pieces to the osseointegrated prosthesis, some of them which are considered internal and some of them which are considered external. Um, the external ones uh, would be managed by your prosthetist. So that's, you know, you'd, you'd go to your prosthetist who's managing your prosthesis. If those parts need to be replaced or serviced, uh, you know, we could order them and replace them for you. Uh, the internal parts, uh, usually if you run into a problem with that, that's something that, that has to be handled by a surgeon. Yeah, you might be referred back to Montreal, back to Dr. Turcott to manage that if you had seen him initially for your surgery. Do you have any advice for people who may be struggling to secure government or insurance funding for an RI procedure? Does their prosthetic funding change? 
probably the the shortest answer to that is that it's all over the place <laughs> and there really isn't a good uh singular answer to it um and probably this is where the experience of your prosthetic team um uh, that are helping you uh will come in um come in quite handy is trying to navigate all of the different funding mechanisms so for example um, whether you're a workers' compensation issue or a um, uh, Department of Veteran Affairs because you served, uh, you served for our country in some way, um, whether it's being done as part of um, uh, a, an insurance claim secondary to a motor vehicle accident, all of these different funding mechanisms have their own nuances, their own uniqueness to it. And because each one of these has dealt with such small numbers of OI people exploring them, there aren't really any good answers. So the truth is that um, we are blazing trail here in terms of how to make these things fundable, how to get them funded, how to have these groups understand the continuing costs um, that are attached to them. Um, so the longer answer um, is that each person's journey is gonna be unique. Each person's funding mechanism is going to be unique. Um, there are some who are paying out of pocket. There are some people who perceive the value of their prosthetic journey to be as valuable, if not more valuable than their automobile, because this is their mobility device. This is their ability to generate independence. And if you think about it like that, and if you have a $28,000 car, you know, that $28,000 coming out of your, out of your pants pocket isn't necessarily super unreasonable in some cases i granted it's a lot of money i'm not trying to downplay it but but people's perception and value of their mobility is is important and is dramatic and so uh, exploring the different funding mechanisms is an important very important step and i think uh, probably that's a lot to digest and it doesn't necessarily help an individual who is specifically right now saying well how am i going to afford this the answer is contact your prosthetic care team and if they have the, the knowledge and the experience to support you in that, they can certainly help you walk through that. What, it, what needs to be understood though, it takes time. None of these things, because nobody really knows how to do it, it takes lots of letter writing, it takes lots of emailing, it takes lots of uh, phone conversations and, and assessments, physical assessments or uh, what have you from different uh, medical teams to be able to identify this as a justifiable cost. Um, and it shouldn't be perceived as a uh, method to not fund it. It's a method of trying to understand it. And it does take time to walk through that journey. And, and I know here with the PBO group, I know that we have gone through that in many different mechanisms. And it's something that, um, that we're, we're really happy to help with because it's a huge part. It's not just about the prosthesis and the componentry. It's about all of the stuff that comes along with it. So I would say that's, Probably the biggest advice that I would have for for the funding side uh, would be that to find somebody that can walk the journey with you and help support you through it. What advice do you have for people who are interested in learning about OI? I think the first thing to do is to be to approach a prosthetist. Really, um, they are your expert in prosthetics, so they're the person that you should be going to first with the questions that you have. As we mentioned earlier, some prosthetists are are really not going to know anything about osseointegration, and some of them might even fear it a little bit. Uh, others will be more involved. 
Um, so, but that's the, that's the person that's um, supposed to be taking care of you and supporting you. And that's the person that you should be going to first. And if you don't find uh, that you're getting what you need out of that person, uh, as Will mentioned earlier, they can refer you to someone else. Uh, there are many resources uh, among one of which is, is our website. If you visit the pbogroup.ca is the website. Uh, we have a tab on that website specifically meant for OSEO integration in which you can find a document, the OSEO 101 document that goes over some of the um, questions that you might have. And ultimately, as mentioned earlier, you know, you can just call any one of our clinics or uh, contact us and we'd be happy to speak with you and answer your questions as well. Uh, thank you very much uh, for, for this opportunity to be with you. Um, I would say uh, before we do anything, it's important that, that we recognize that um, in the middle of this OI journey that we are on and that we're traveling alongside uh, the limb loss community, it's important for us to recognize that we've gone through a, a name change and a, and a brand change. So in, in this series of interviews, we've been talking about the PBO group, uh, which stands for Prosthetics Bracing and Orthotics, and it's a group of companies. Um, but previous to this and right in the middle and, and as we go through this journey, we were previously referred to as our location names such as Niagara Prosthetics, Kawartha Prosthetics, or Barry Prosthetics, Owen Sound Prosthetics. Um, so um, those names over the last few months have been almost interchangeable and have been jumping back and forth. So um, if you're used to finding us using those names, um, you can certainly find us uh, now using the PBO group. Um, our website, pbogroup.ca. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, um, getting better at Instagram. It's something that's new for us. So we're, uh, we're trying to uh, use that new, newer uh, technology for us anyway, um, through our social media channels. And um, we're really looking forward to an opportunity to um, meet anybody and everybody who's interested in OI. Where can people find more about the PBO group or get their hands on the Austin Education 101 booklet that you have. So thanks again for having us on this podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to everyone about OI. We're really excited about engaging with more patients regarding OI. If you have any questions at all, please direct them to our website, pdogroup.ca. There's a area where you can email us or message us and one of our staff will get back to you. And we can certainly also engage with you on our social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. So we welcome all questions and please don't be shy to reach out at all. Thank you. If you're just joining my show in this episode, this is the fourth episode in the series of OCR Integration Talks. I highly recommend you listen to the interview with Dr. Robert Tarcott, the first surgeon in Canada to perform OI. And then there were two more episodes with the first Canadian OI patients living their best lives as well. I want to thank Alan Rigby, Andrew Littner, Brent Jones, and Will Hattie of the PBO Group for joining me today. I'll provide the links on my website, www.airstotlingo.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions, comments, or show ideas, please connect to me on Facebook and Instagram at The FDO Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Bingo, and this has been The FDO Show Podcast. <laughs>